I'm wondering if you can recount your story about sneaking into shows in Detroit, mm-hmm. going over the, was it the Canadian border? Yep. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. So there's, uh, there's a river that separates the two countries. I uh, can take the bridge or the tunnel and you know, literally it's a couple of minutes you cross the border and you're, you're in Detroit, which was always great because we had just had so much access to entertainment that the small city in Canada didn't have. You know, you could go see your Red Wings game, go see Lions game, see the Tigers play or all of the big concerts from Michael Jackson right on down would, would come there. Uh, and I just had this idea. I was, I was broke, but you know, I had a video camera. I wanted to like meet people and, and really I only did it because I wanted to meet the band. So I just, you know, sort of made some fake press credentials, uh, for Canadian media TV station. I won't mention, uh, now, now defunct. So it wouldn't matter, but I was able to get in on, on the premise of like, Hey, I'm supposed to be here to interview the band. And, uh, you know, take this video clip back to the news station. Oh, we're not on the list. Well, oh, gee, I'm going to get fired if I don't, I don't have this. And nine out of 10 times it would work. And most of the time I lied to them saying like, well, do you need a pass to film some of the show as well? So I, I did it as a way, one, just to meet bands that I liked. That was the bonus, or at least get a pass to see the show that I didn't have to pay for. Because I love going to music venues, but you know, as a broke, you know, 20 something filmmaker, I didn't, I didn't have the money to go see all these shows. Uh, and then one of those bands that I, that I originally did that with was the rock band Third Eye Blind, uh, and ended up befriending Steven, their singer and the other guys in the band and, and actually got hired to create content for the band and stayed in touch. Uh, and Steven at the time or around that time was producing a record for the artist, Vanessa Carlton. Uh, she had the song thousand miles that was used in most people know from white chicks. They sing it in the car. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, beautiful, huge, super hit song. And they needed somebody to shoot the making of her second album. So that was my first trip out to Hollywood. I uh, shot this documentary, got to edit it all together. Uh, that was sold as like a, a double thing. Like it came as a bonus DVD with her, with her album. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, had I, had I not snuck into that concert once, wouldn't have had my first LA trip, wouldn't have had my first sort of professional paycheck doing anything in the film industry. And it started to open up uh, opportunities for bands saying like, well, if you do all this behind the scenes and tour video stuff, like, could you shoot a music video and just never say no, just say yes. And then figure it out. Uh, so that, that led to, you know, my first music videos, which was a hundred and something music videos ago. So it's the best, uh, rule breaking I've ever done. You know, I love third eye blind. So it's a very cool band to get your start with. Do you remember the first time they said yes and you got to go in like the green room or wherever it was? And what was that like as this 20-something year old? Uh, well, it, it was right there that, that first night because I was going to interview Steven. Uh, that, that was part of it and uh, ended up right as the interview ended talking to their bass player. And, and I was a big fan of the band. They, they had three albums out at the time. Their third album had just come out and, uh, and got chatting with him. And he had, he had acted in The Matrix, the second Matrix movie. So he was telling me all about that set experience was just the nicest guy ever. And I had just shot my first indie feature film. Uh, and we were talking about, he said, Oh, I've always wanted to compose music for films and everything. So I I could do your movie. I was like, this would be amazing. So we (laughs) traded emails there. So like I kind of had, it it was just, honestly, it couldn't have gone any better if I tried. Um, but at the same time, I didn't hang around any longer than I needed to be there. Um, you know, that's one thing as, as a fan or, or in any industry party or events, like, you know, no, 
know your know your place and, and don't overstep your bounds or, or people's comfort zones. Sure. Sometimes you're on the list and they won't they don't believe you that you're that, that happens to be more here. often than not. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm supposed to be here, I swear. <laughs> Did I understand it correctly that you used to rent video cameras in the beginning? Way back yeah, I was uh we're talking like VHS cameras. So we, I think the first time my family did it was on a family trip to Disney World in the late '80s or early '90s. We just uh, rented one so that you could you could rent it and film your adventure in the park, and then just you know keep keep the tape that you filmed on. And uh, that was probably my first directing experience because that my mom still has that tape somewhere, and most of it is just me bossing my younger brother around, I'm like no. I'm going to turn the camera on, I'm going to say action, and then you walk over here and I'm going to be pointing at the top of the, the, the castle and pan down and you'll walk in and wave. And like, so I had no idea what directing was, but apparently that's, that's what I was doing. And then when I had a paper route uh, growing up around the same time, or maybe a year or two later, uh, my friend Troy Schwager and I and my neighbor Eli Parent were sort of obsessed with making movies. So the local video shop rented the, you know, he'd rent the camcorder for 20 or 30 bucks for the weekend. So we would get all the neighborhood kids together and our younger siblings and make Indiana Jones and the Lost Controller, you know, look, looking for the remote or mostly just parody videos. Friday the 13th, part 26 or whatever. Home Alone 3, just, you know, building our own traps in the houses and mostly to also just injure our younger brothers. And so it was like half jackass and half parody films. But yeah, we that, it, that's. Uh, but the only way to edit then for us was to shoot a shot, press pause, and then get ready to shoot the next one and record. So that we just had to sort of edit in camera and shoot everything in sequence, which was an amazing skill set to learn that I didn't realize I was learning of how to like minimize the number of setups and shots and only shoot exactly what you need to to make a movie. So it's definitely helped save money even even to this day on music video shoots. Was your plan to stay in Ontario or did you want to go to LA or that was never in the cards? I, I definitely wanted to go to LA to go to film school, but as an international student, everything is, is far more expensive. Uh, the exchange rate rarely works in the uh, Canadian dollar's favor. Uh, so it was just going to be way too expensive. And when I left high school, I went to work at a Walmart and said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save up money. I'll work here for a year or two and then go to film school. I had looked in Toronto at Ryerson, but you know, like you see reading about Spielberg and everybody else, like UCLA was the place. And uh, I ended up injuring myself with a hernia working, managing the garden center at Walmart in, in Windsor and wasn't able to work at all. And that's when I said, you know what, I bet you I could, I used to do like the video yearbook or, or sort of like similar kind of videos for the school and make a little bit of money selling copies at the end of the year. I thought, oh, maybe I could like do wedding videos or some local TV commercials. And that's when I started a business of my own. And that's the last, Walmart's the last job job that I had when I was about 18 or 19. And I've just always done something video related since since then. So yeah, it wasn't really until I I met my wife, we got married and she's an actress and she wanted to give LA a try. We came out here for the premiere of one of our films and she just tried surfing and just instantly fell in love with it and said, we need to be here, <laughs> whatever it takes. What's the easiest year you've had filmmaking? Or just everything sort of just like there were green lights everywhere? Oh man, is that a thing? <laughs> uh, 
I would say 2012. I was doing a lot of independent music videos. And I did a lot of them that year. I did like 30, 35 or 40 music videos in one year. So it was almost week after week. Like uh, I hadn't learned the art of saying no yet because it just always feels when you're independent that like if you don't say yes to something, you're never going to get the, the next project from that band or that record label. And so I would, you know, pitch a music video and then the next day shoot something and then that would get greenlit. And then while I was editing something, we'd shoot something. So there's always like one in preparation, one shooting, one in post. And I do all of my own editing as well. So it was just the, the year just blew by and, and had done so much stuff in so many different formats, uh, you know, single take music videos, uh, a rap video, uh, an independent video, a video with a bigger budget. And it was just the best way to sort of train myself to work efficiently, use the money wise, you know, because the music video budgets just keep dropping and dropping. And, and a lot of them were just sort of friends bands or people starting out. So there wasn't a budget. So it was the best sort of year of building a toolkit of skills that I could use moving forward for micro budget features that I wanted to make. Uh, and I was traveling a lot I, from Windsor to Toronto was like the, the closest major Canadian city with an industry. And uh, I just spent a lot of time in Toronto and had a lot of hype around a, a feature script that I had called Four Shots at the time that we were in development on. So it was just sort of the perfect year where I really thought, oh man, it's gonna stay like this forever. And then of course it changes. <laughs> well, my next question was, uh, or is, uh, what was the worst year? And do you think anything, it was just a matter of luck hmm. for both situations? It would be, I'm trying to think when things, I remember the years of that, probably 2013, the end of 2012. So the script that I had four shots had been greenlit multiple times, had the budget raised multiple times, it fell apart. And that stuff is standard, it happens in filmmaking all the time. But this particular script was about a shooting in a high school, kind of a Columbine story, but told in a really interesting way. It's, it, it was going to be told in a single take, so the camera showed it never shuts off. It was multi-screen, so it was showing what it would be like by, for different students' uh, perspectives to be trapped inside the school. And when we wrote it, like nothing had been done. You know, there had been the Blair Witch Project, but there wasn't a paranormal activity yet. There wasn't a Cloverfield. There wasn't a Chronicle. There wasn't an, everything else that came with the camcorder and started the found footage craze. So we really kind of had like that lightning in a bottle thing, but because of the, the politics and the sensitivity of the subject matter, every time there would be, you know, and, and from Columbine, until Virginia Tech, there was not really a sort of mass shooting or especially in a school setting. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we first got the script off the ground right before, like literally a month or two before Virginia Tech happened. And then everybody pulled out of that. We had set it up again with, uh, with Icon Films and D Films in, in Canada and were in development for, for a long time. And, uh, and then there was the Batman movie theater shooting in Colorado and Aurora. Uh, that lost us our investors and you know and it, it even makes us as the filmmakers squeamish too of like uh i know i know we're not i know the script does not sensationalize the subject matter but it, it still makes you you know when things like that are happening in real life it makes it hard to to want to be creative and tell a, a fictional story about it uh and then that same year was the uh sandy hook elementary shooting and we were actually sort of getting into rehearsals and we were fully cast and ready to go and, uh, and that happened and that it fell apart again. So for me, it had been five years of chasing the same project, not making a movie at all. Um, nothing else was like working out. I wanted to move to Toronto, but 
I've been staying in Windsor because we were going to make the movie in Windsor and it just made more sense. We had a high school that was willing to donate the entire building that we could make this happen, you know, on a small budget. Uh, so it was, it was a really tough year to put in five years working there. Really, we were right there and we had all the, the major players that went away. And then you have the thought of like, will I, will I ever get another film made? That was happening the same year, 2012. So 2013, the first half of the year was a real dark place of like, did I just waste five years of my life? Um, and it had been affecting personal relationships and things like that as well. Cause it was, just, I was just so, you kind of have to be a little completely laser focused on, on getting any movie made. Um, and we were just so focused on making that happen that it just, it, it caused strife in just about every other department. And what did they, what, what did various parties tell you if you can, you know, just maybe sure. boil it down when they would pass, let's suppose you were ready to do something and then. Yeah. It was less passive, it was just a concern, you know, um, what, what's the recourse to this film going to be? Will, will we get sued? Like, what's the, what's the public outcry going to be? And, and, and in a way, they're a little predictive of what sort of like the backlash society we've seen in the last few years, where the minute, you know, pe people trip up and make a mistake in phrasing something wrong on the internet and, and the public outcry is so huge that they were probably right that I was, you know, one of the one of the plans was to always have me do PR training before I did any interviews for the movie. Because like if you say anything that sounds remotely insensitive or or, you know, like make, you know, making light of the, the topic of, of mass shootings and, you know, like teenagers dying in high school, like we, we might have a PR nightmare, you know. Um, so they were they were very, I think, that, you know, in, in some ways they were they were profits that they knew. And, and you know sometimes these companies are public traded companies and they just you know they they have to derive away from all potential controversies or and we've seen in the past you know mel gibson couldn't get uh passion of the christ financed or, or finished with miramax at the time you know and they were owned by disney and um you know but before their you know their current current issues but they you know so when icon got on board we thought oh we have a company that understands controversy and uh, it just, yeah, it just kept getting too sensitive and, and, and delayed the project. And then at a point I just had to walk away and say, I need to go make a different movie and not, not keep having this same, cause who knows, you know, the, the public shootings, and it might've been the right move because public shootings have not stopped. Um, you know, some of them have been more horrific than, than anything else in history. And, uh, although I don't believe we shouldn't not tell stories about things that are happening, I definitely understand why people got a little sensitive about it. Have you thought of rewriting the script or adding a new part of it in order to not satisfy anybody who might be too sensitive, but take a new spin with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it would just be a completely different movie at that point, I think. Part of what I love about it, uh, and one of the things I like to ingest in a lot of my filmmaking is just something that's very raw and feels real, and this, this definitely was. Part of the issue too was to make a movie like a Blair Witch. Like part of it is it's like being able to market it and, and sort of fool the public and say like, did this or did this not really happen? And that's where a lot of the sensitivity oh. came from. Like in order to make the movie successful, that's how we have to market it. But then that's the thing that could have the biggest backlash. I, it's, it's my favorite script. And at some point in time, if I have the money to just go out and make it, I'll self-finance it. And you know, it's, it's, um, but I ended up getting to make Last Call, which is, is a similar idea of doing the split screen and, and single takes. So uh, I've, I've satisfied, and I did a project for Blumhouse. We did the world's first live movie that kind of had a bit of the, 
the same goal. So I've sort of taken that that energy and storytelling that I wanted to do with four shots and put it into other projects that were less less controversial. One last question about it, and then we'll mm-hmm. move on. But um, was the truther movement very strong at that time? You know how there's the full movement of like a lot of this is staged and for various yeah, reasons. Yeah. Was it was it strong at that time? No, when you first no. I think I, when Sandy, you know, especially the Sandy Hook one, that's the one that that has the most. You know, Alex Jones notoriously has has had a huge outcry to say that this never happened, but that wasn't. I mean, conspiracy theories pop up about everything, but but it wasn't. I don't think it was anywhere near as rampant. And we were talking like the direct ap- aftermath, you know. And then the real truth is, you know, like somebody somebody pointed a gun at at children, like little kids, and not the teenagers or any better, or college kids, or people in a bank or anywhere else. But it was it was just a different kind of disturbing that it could really happen anywhere. And I, I don't really think even us as the filmmakers and the producers really wanted to make it it's just something that turns your stomach enough to not not care to pursue it anymore at this stage in your career how do you measure your success uh, i'm i'm working and i get to wake up every day and make make movies or music videos i uh you know i've come close to a few bigger sort of studio deals and projects uh even my the film previous to this the scare house you know was picked up by universal studios and released between them and a company called D Film, sort of like packaged and put it all over the world and is still on cable. And, and that was wonderful, but it takes so much time and energy and patience to go through the studio system that I've sort of carved out that, although that's still a dream and I'd love to direct TV and there's lots of things I haven't done, uh, I'm also very comfortable with making my own films and finding smaller amounts of financing and using all the skills I've developed through making no budget music videos and short films with friends to just sort of always have something in the works that is is creative and different that, you know, if I had tried to make Last Call this weird split screen movie with no stars, like, what do you mean we can't edit it or change it if we don't like it in post? Like, I don't know how far that would have got through the studio system. Being somebody without a lot of clout or a track record of any any kind of material the same. So for me, it's, it's waking up knowing that the film, the weird little indie films I wanna make that my passion can be a reality and I can get to make those. And, and if I could do that till the day I die, I'd be, I'd be thrilled. And with that sort of mindset, anything larger or bigger opportunities that could pop up are, are really just, just a dream. They'd be, they'd be wonderful, but they're not necessary for me to feel satisfied as a storyteller. I'm just as happy making a film with my iPhone or, or my Sony A7S with some friends for a weekend as you know having proper financing and a full crew and and running around so i think that that was the big thing to come to that like being a filmmaker doesn't mean the house in the hills it doesn't mean you know being on entertainment tonight it doesn't mean opening globally and box office numbers it's about finding the stories and then the things that you want to say and then finding sort of your voice or, or a unique way to say them do you think a studio would touch the topic the, the subject matter of Last Call. I mean, it's beautifully shot. Mm. And, and you have a live score, right, that, that goes yeah, along with yeah. the two, two screens. But do you think they would touch the subject matter? I think, I think there's been a lot of, uh, you know, it, it, the film deals with suicide. It, it's, it's a mental health story for sure. Um, it's, it's a little dark. I don't want to give anything away. But it's, it's, a, it's a little darker than maybe. Uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, A Star Is Born just uh, had a massive. I don't want to give away spoilers, but there's a big, there's a big mental health <laughs> component to that. Uh, 
uh, 13 Reasons Why opens, you know, the Netflix series, oh, it's based on a book, but it opens on a teenage girl who's committed suicide and left these tapes behind the 13 reasons why I, you know, I, what led to this decision. So that's, that's dark. And there was a lot of people that were upset about it. And I remember reading some sort of petitions and parents groups that were not happy with it, you know, living in fear that it would, you know, cause their, their teenage impressionable children to, to take the same path. And I think that's the wrong way to approach it. The approach would be, let's sit down and discuss this and, and how to avoid this and learn from it. Um, so I, th I think there's, and I don't, I can't remember in recent times, like recent years before that, anything that was tackling the same. But I also feel like we're in a stage where just as a society, we're only really starting to understand mental illness and mental health and medicating for it. You know, and I'm, I'm far from an expert. I will, I will never claim that Last Call uh, has, has a firm stance on this is the way it is and this is the way that it happens. We made a movie for entertainment purposes, but we did our very best to research the content and try to make it feel as real to to a real life situation. But uh, I think I think we do live in a time where, as a society, and especially with social media, to keep things in check, um, you know instantly if people are liking the content you're creating or not. And uh, there's a lot of great cinema that brings up brings up topical things. You know, I think of movies like. Um, uh, a tangerine that was shot on the iPhone and and deals deals with uh, the LGBT community and things that in a way that we had never seen like just just the fact that I think what's happening too is because anyone can make a movie now people that wouldn't have been able to tell these weird quirky stories about different different groups or topics that aren't widely covered by Hollywood I mean most people want to go to the movies if you're paying money to go to the movies and take your family you want to watch a star wars you want to watch a marvel movie you want to watch toy story you know what i mean you, you go to be entertained and life is life and politics and finances and everything else are already like so heavy in so many people's lives like you you, you want to go to be uplifted but for the rest of us that just like gripping stories and want to learn more about different pockets of the world uh it's it's a fantastic revolution but i think that's where you'll always see topics that aren't given enough spotlight is, is going to come up through independent cinema until it almost becomes sort of like accepted or, or embraced. And then the studio systems will, will often catch on and, and, and make content in the same vein. What prompted you to co-write the film? David Wilkins that I wrote it with, it's his idea. He came to me, he uh, ran a weekly coffee get together which uh, essentially it's uh, act actors, filmmakers, it's just a group of us. And he invited me to that once I met him. And the idea is you can't talk about anything negative. You can only talk about the positive. You can have coffee and you can talk positive. You can't complain about your agent. You can't complain about how you didn't book that role. You can't complain about, uh, you know, getting rejected for a screenplay you wrote. You just have to talk about positive things. And it's a way to encourage people to like look at life in this career, which is difficult. Uh, through through a new light and then also try to network people and he just came in one day says I have this idea It'd be like a great acting piece like maybe it's a short film like maybe it's a guy but it's a guy calling a suicide hotline uh, You like doing real time he had acted in a single take music video I did he had seen a 20-minute short film that the cinematographer last call and I had done about a year before he said I think you could do this in real time um, and originally it was him, the character calling a suicide hotline. What it evolved into was uh, the character of Scott calling and misdialing and getting connected to a random stranger. Because we thought that added a lot more dynamic if the person on the other side of the phone didn't, uh, 
didn't have the, the, the knowledge or the, or the education or the skill set necessarily to handle somebody who's suicidal on the other line. So there are, there are some ups and downs in the story of Last Call that come from somebody's unpreparedness and sort of almost like unprofessionalism in, in their approach to dealing with him. But it was just, it, I would say it's like one of those lightning bolt moments where he started talking about it and I was like, real time and then can, we can show both sides of the story. Maybe we could actually shoot it simultaneously at two different parts of the city. This is like what I wanted to do with my school shooting movie, which of course that was all contained in one building and a little easier, but uh, just on the technical challenge and the story challenge, that that was just it. And David and I have been talking about finding something to work on together for a while. Uh, so this was our first foray into it, but just not that anything's easy to write ever, but we were just able to like every idea he had, he'd say, and I'd say, well, what about this? And it got a little better. And, you know, he texts me in the middle of the night. I was thinking about this scene. What do you think? And just everything was kind of like better, 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 better. And we're like, okay, we, we obviously can work well together. Let's, uh, let's see if we can make this. But we went from idea to sort of shooting the movie in about a year span, maybe a little longer. And it probably would have happened faster, but we, uh, I, I was always busy. He'd book a commercial like um, Sarah, who acts in it, would book, book a TV series. So we were always kind of uh, the only thing. There were no obstacles really in making getting this movie to camera other than the fact that we were all busy filming other projects. Can you talk about the screenwriting process? So David had this mm -hmm. idea yeah. and you two were bouncing ideas off of each other. But how did the actual screenplay process work out? David and I would try to get together in person as often as possible. I'm a, I'm a stickler for outlining the story before you start writing writing dialogue. So a lot of it was just the painstaking. And this, this because we have two sides of the story, we have to make sure that there's something interesting happening on both sides of the screen at the, at the same time. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting because for an audience perspective, they can see, say, for example, there, there's a moment, it's not a big spoiler, but like Scott lies and says that he stopped drinking. He isn't going to have anything else to drink. So she feels relieved and the things are going the right way. But what the audience can see is that's not the case. So we're sort of always ahead of the game. We want to sort of give it that perspective, but also finding ways where just the, the synergy of if she's sitting in the darkness or talking about a dark story, then he, he's out on the balcony in the light, just ways to keep a story interesting that would translate visually when you're never cutting and can't go back and cut anything. Because real time, that's that's it. You know, you're you're done. You're, we have no hidden cuts. There, there's there's nothing like that. Uh, so a lot of it was just figuring out the structure of how to do the story, but also having a story where we're going to have one phone call for the entire time. The dynamics of that, the reveals of information, the sort of like twists or shocks or turns. Just just pacing that out was the agonizing part. And then you know, David and I both really enjoy writing dialogue. And David, I think some of the most beautiful dialogue he's, he's written to date out of anything I've read is, is in this script. Um, you know, a lot of that was he, he was always going to play Scott in the movie. You know, he's the actor in the film as well. So I think he was able to also cater writing that would suit his skill set and, uh, and really help draw out the best of his acting talents and, and, and the character. And then once we knew that uh, Sarah Booth was going to play Beth, I also, you know, I've I had a great chance to work with her a handful of times. I've seen her on stage and, and one act plays that are, you know, two hours on stage with no scene breaks. I just knew that we could also throw a lot of, you know, heavy dialogue at her that she'd be able to do it. And yeah, we try to meet as much as possible. We use the software Writer's Duet to write the script. Writer's Duet operates similar to Google Docs where if you have multiple people on it, 
even if we're not together, we can see every change word by word just appears in the document. So if I'm sitting looking at the screen and David's writing, I can see what's being changed as you know, even if we're working remotely. And then what was neat was we were able to, since it was David and Sarah, and we're all friends and, or, or lived, you know, Sarah's my wife, so we, we live together, it's easy to schedule rehearsal times. We would actually get together, read through portions of the script. We were able to sort of like adapt based on hearing it out loud. And then leading up to the actual, we were writing the film right into the film production because there's also, we always knew there'd be what we call like an accordion effect where until we could actually rehearse it on set and like, okay, well, it says that Scott walks from the bar to his apartment. Is that going to be seven minutes long? Is that going to be 12 minutes long? Is that three minutes long? Based on the locations we had, we knew that we probably have to add or remove dialogue to get it in the sort of time frame that we wanted the finished film to be. So every day that we would rehearse things, we would change things, remove things, add more, and we were able to sort of film every rehearsal and see how it, so sort of a, a living, breathing script right up until even the first couple takes versus the last takes, there, there are changes to the, to the story and the characters that happen. So it was a, a little different than anything else we'd written. But what, what ended up being really neat was Sarah had gone to uh, Montreal to shoot a project David was in LA and I was in Windsor prepping things for the movie and uh, working on a couple music videos in Ontario. So we would do our rehearsals over the phone. So them as actors were already doing what they were gonna have to do on screen. And I was able to just kind of listen to the phone call as the director and one of the writers and make notes and say, this is boring, this doesn't work, this, this, is, this is mumbly and confusing and not clear. Uh, so it's sort of, that, that busyness benefited the script, being able to sort of rehearse it the way it was gonna be performed. And you shot the film in Canada, you said? Shot the film in my home city in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. So anybody who's seen the film or has a chance, the bridge in the background, it is not uh, Brooklyn or New York, it is, it is Detroit, Michigan. It's the ambassador bridge that connects the countries. My, my you know, we were, we, our goal with this film was to make it super micro budget so that we wouldn't be out of pocket um, we also know making independent film, like the landscape's changing. There's no more blockbuster. There's barely a DVD and home video market anymore. So you have to make your movies that don't have big stars in them. You have to make them for a fraction of the budget if you want to be successful at recouping money at the end of the day. So having said all that, shooting at home, I knew, um, you know, the college, we worked at a deal with the college that we filmed in because in the script, the character of Beth is the night janitor at a college, but we had this beautiful college building that we had full access to every day to rehearse and light and prep and shoot the movie in. And they essentially sponsored the movie and even had some of their students come out and help on set and help behind the scenes, which was phenomenal. Uh, the film score was recorded live in a single take and that was done at the college's beautiful theater, the Chrysler Theater in Windsor. Again, they, they helped us. We, we did that event as a student event where high school students could come and watch the making of, of a score and learn about how film music is created. So my home city is always, not a lot of filmmaking happens there. So it's exciting. We always try to involve the students and the people. We had restaurants, local restaurants that sponsored us and hotels that cut us deals for the out of town cast and crew. So the, the, the limited funds we did have, we could put on the screen and in the production value and not uh, not worry about if we, if we shot it in LA, I think the price would honestly be quadrupled with the permits and and you know if, if if I need to close entire streets to walk from a bar to an apartment building, it just I don't think it would have happened. 
Um, you know, we had this high rise. It's it just everything worked out in perfect state. The bar we filmed in is my favorite bar back home, Vermouth. Uh, my friend Matt that owns the bar is also an actor. So he plays the bartender and the bar owner in the movie. There was just so much sort of perfect synergy to, to shoot it there that I can't imagine us having done it. At one point I tossed her for about five and a half seconds. I said, what if we shot one side in LA and one side in Windsor? And then we truly have this phone call that's across, you know, even the border. And, uh, and everybody said, no, that's too, that's too, <laughs> we don't have, maybe one day when we have the money, we'll do something bigger. Yeah. What were some of the questions that the high school students asked and were you also so surprised at how advanced they were? Mm, uh, well, there wasn't a whole lot of time for questions. Oh, I see. A lot of, a lot of it was uh, based around where, where is sort of the emotion, where, where is the composer, uh, you know, our composer Adrian Ellis, where does he start? Like, how do you look at something with no music and say, how do you choose what instrument? How do you choose, like, are you, are you telling the action of the story versus the, is it, is the music themed around the characters? Um, I think film music has an amazing appreciation. So, you know, a lot of them would, we ask some, we ask questions like, what's your favorite film scores? And like, you know, Inception, Star Wars, uh, Edward Scissorhands, you know, the, all the big composers come out. So I feel they were, we had some music classes as well. So they had some very specific things to ask of our string quartets and, and how the, and then people that are just interested in filmmaking, understanding. So it's recorded here, but then how does it actually get mixed into the movie? And, uh, and this one was a little different too, because Adrian and I, we had, you know, you typically music fades out as the scene ends and then it cuts to a new scene and a different music cue comes in or it doesn't. With this, there's no start and stops to scenes being in a single take. So we, we, we had a real trouble figuring out, okay, we want to have music come in emotionally, but it's going to be, it can't feel cheap or forced or just suddenly like, and now there's dramatic music because there wasn't an organic way to sort of bring it in. Uh, so we, we had uh, not, not fights, but a lot, of, a lot of head scratching on that one of what to, what to do. We always knew we wanted to do the music live, but uh, it was, everything on this film was a different process. So I, I should have figured when we got to music, it would be, it was going to be a challenge. And Last Call has distribution? Nope. We uh, made the film. Our intention was, I founded a distribution company. And we said, if all else fails, we will self-distribute. Uh, I've been through the distribution ringer a few different times where I've never seen the profit participation I'm supposed to. It is not uncommon in this business. Unfortunately, the music and the film industry have this very crooked reputation and it's for a reason. It is crooked. <laughs> it, should, it deserves a terrible reputation. Uh, so if we are not able to secure a reputable distributor that also will get the film to the masses, and cut us a fair deal um, with proper profit participation. We said, we, this is a small enough amount of money that I feel confident in taking it out ourselves. And uh, we have some sort of inventive ways that I haven't seen before to release indie film. Uh, I'm no stranger for marketing and trying to sell out screenings in different cities, had success with that. So we thought we could definitely do it on our own. So that, that was part of the the fun of this movie, having the freedom to know that we didn't have to shoot something that would please distributors. Or again, because a lot of times an indie film gets made, you find a proper distributor and they say, okay, we want to change this, this, maybe change this. It's like, well, we can't, we, we can't edit anything in this movie. The most you could do is adjust the music or, or the color correction. But other than that, it is what it is. So we knew we'd be up against maybe not even being able to find a traditional distributor. Uh, and when you make something experimental, you just, you never know what 
you honestly, even as the director, you go, this is what we hope for. We don't know how it's going to turn out or how audiences will receive it. So we said, let's just make something that we're comfortable releasing ourselves. And we know that that's, that's a plan that we're all happy with, would be thrilled with. And that way, anything else that comes along really is a dream come true. Are you able to divulge some of how you found the distribution company or what some of your plans are or some of that's like under wraps? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's all still very initial. It's, it's called uh, FU Entertainment, okay. which is uh, an acronym for uh, Filmmakers Unite, because if nobody else will stand up for us, then we should just say FU to the entertainment industry. Uh, just a little tongue in cheek stab at things. Uh, but I do, you know, I have a lot of director and producer friends and that make these great indie movies and sort of all get stuck in the same, the same system don't earn their money back. Like some, you know, you know this the Kevin Smith model. You max your credit cards or put two years of your, you know, uh, finances from your your day job into making a movie, and then to not see a penny back while somebody else makes money off of you, it's it's just wrong. So you know, there's there's a little bit of hope. Not that I want to become a full time business manager distributor, but if it if it worked and we were able to do it, I might be comfortable also assisting some of my friends and and finding a way for them to get their films out there. I think one of the, the greatest skill sets that I've, I've had the chance to do is, you know, Canada also has wonderful grants available to filmmakers that, that were part of what we were doing with the high school shooting movie with Four Shots. It was a large part of how we got the Scarehouse financed and made. So I've, I've had a blessing of having mentors in Canadian distributors, uh, Canadian producers like Rob Merrilies out of Vancouver, who is an executive producer on Four Shots learning the financing system and really studying and understanding the business side of film, which a lot of filmmakers don't arm themselves with. I think they do themselves a disservice of not understanding the business before they pick up a camera uh, because you might make a movie that's unsellable. And that's something you definitely don't want to do. No matter how good of a movie you made, it might be unsellable because it has to check certain boxes. Will it work in this country? Can it sell direct on, on iTunes? Will it, will it hit this, this certain market? Or if it's the horror market, but it's too funny, horror comedies are this weird space that don't always hit. Um, so I think as much as most artists don't want to be business people or understand financing, like uh, the, the best thing you could arm yourself with is understanding all aspects of the business as well as the creative. Do you think it's easier to sell a title in Canada? Do you think Canadians are less they're more open to looking at topics, whereas the U.S. maybe in the last few years too has gotten more is constricted. Um, I think yeah. For, I mean, French Canada makes some beautiful films that, that tackle some some big big topics. Having that government financing helps a lot often because then a private investor or a distributor or studio doesn't have to put as much of the risk capital up because the the government grants the tax credits are are taking a, a large portion of, of, of the the cash equity that it takes to make a film. So there's a more willingness to make, you know, let's let's call them bolder films or or less uh, less common stories because there isn't as much of a financial risk. But I think as, as audiences go, uh, I think we're just just as open as the Americans or, or anywhere else. It's just a matter of how to, if those films are made and available to us, we'll watch them. Uh, another thing we're fortunate with with Canadian film is that the broadcasters, the TV stations and, and whatnot, cable stations uh, do have to accept a certain amount of Canadian content as part of their deal to broadcast in Canada. So we're very fortunate that sometimes just, just by default, they have to buy and program Canadian content. So as a Canadian filmmaker making a Canadian film, there are outlets that are available to you 
that favor you over, say, an American movie or a British movie or anything else. In 15 seconds, can you describe the technical premise behind your latest film, Last Call? Last Call is a feature film shot in real time, so single take, no edits, but also split screen. So there's two camera crews shooting simultaneously that, when put together in the edit, make up the, uh, the entire film. And is this a style you've tried before? I have done uh, not split screen. I've done a few split screen music videos, but not real time. Uh, I have done a single take 20 minute short film. And I worked with uh, Blumhouse, uh, the, the Horror Kings, to do a, a sort of War of the World style film that was done live on a cell phone. So streamed live, no edits because it was truly live. There's no way to do it again. Uh, that ran about 20, 22 minutes and was a short film that we did right before Halloween a few years ago. And then a bunch of single take uh, music videos, but dealing with three to five minutes at a time maximum. What other films have you seen in this style? I mean, have you seen uh, other directors yeah. do this? Uh, I mean, the one that everybody knows from back in the day is Rope, Alfred Hitchcock. And although a roll of film can only run for 10 minutes, what they do is they, they hid the edits perfectly so it feels like a seamless take. Uh, Birdman was shot the same way, where they, they hide they hide the edits, but but it keeps that real time sort of flavor to it. Victoria, that's on Netflix right now, is one of my favorites from a few years ago. Uh, that that one's massive; it's over two hours long. It, it's very complex, moving all over uh, a German city. Uh, time Code, the Mike Figgis made, was split four ways and uh, done with sort of a loose script and improv and was just fascinating to watch. Like experimental films, my, my favorite. So I've, I've been long obsessed with making one of these myself. It's just been a matter of finding the right story that would work. What are some of the hidden challenges that the audience doesn't see, but from a technical, sure. from a, sorry, technical aspect? Our, our film, we chose to strip down the crew as much as humanly possible. So traditionally you would have a separate person pulling focus for the camera. Uh, you would have a camera assistant. Uh, for us, we had the camera operator was their own focus puller. Uh, we used the new Tilta, uh, Tilta Max, with, uh, I forget the Nucleus M, but they're, they're handle grips for, for a shoulder mount that have the, the focus wheel in them. So they, they had to pull their own focus, be their own assistant. There just wasn't room to get in and out of vehicles, uh, move around small apartment spaces up and downstairs, and uh, also trying to minimize the amount of noise, the footsteps. And the, we, we really wanted to not have to do any ADR for the actors. ADR is when they replace the dialogue, it tends to be always noticeable and never, never the right emotion. We have a very uh, emotionally heavy film. Uh, in that respect, our sound guys weren't able to use uh, boom mics because again, there'd be too many shadows on walls or catching it in the frame. We're trying to, the camera's constantly moving, the actors are constantly moving in and out of cars, elevators, it just wouldn't have been practical. So our sound guys were only able to use uh, like lapel mics, lav mics. And what we did was we doubled up the mics. We had two mics on each actor. And that way if one went out, we would hope that the other one was there. If it became untaped and fell down into their pant leg, hopefully we'd have another option. And we actually recorded them both, just one slightly louder, one slightly quieter, just in case somebody screamed, it wouldn't peak. But if they were too quiet, if they were whispering, we would have it on the other mic. So our, our sound team had the challenge. And then when it comes into post-production, it's the, uh, you know, when you color correct a film or want to reframe anything, usually if you're doing it shot by shot, it's easy to just zoom in for that 10 seconds or color correct shot by shot. But in real time, it meant keyframing, which means, you know, picking 
multiple points, which by the end of it, we have hundreds, if not thousands of making minor adjustments. So if the camera turns from a doorway into a darker area and we need to brighten it up a little bit so that, you know, sort of all those color levels and sound levels are, are just constantly in flux throughout the whole movie that aren't noticeable to the, to the eye, but definitely play a huge part in making the film look as good as it can. And you edit all of your own films? I do, yeah. So you edited Last Call? This was my favorite one to edit because I didn't have to edit anything. You know? <laughs> it, re it really truly was two, two takes put side by side. So uh, I'm credited as, as the editor, but it means, it means reframing. So if there's a shot where the character of Scott and Beth are on the phone and he's maybe zoomed, the, where the camera's closer to him, I would, I would reframe and zoom her shot in a bit, just trying to make moments where the, where the two shots could be parallel. We're just trying to find the, the best beautiful balance between the two sides of the story. But also our, um, although it's split screen, the, the split screen changes in the film. So sometimes it's a horizontal split screen, which we did for sort of the emotional core of the story. The idea is that that's when they're not emotionally connected or even actually connected over the telephone. And then the, the bar will rotate at times and go vertical um, so that they're, that's when they are connected. So the, the perspective of the film also changes throughout. So that involved us in post, uh, you know, adding those rotations in and then also moving the images at the same time just to, to have the best, as it changes from split, to find the best way to present them together. So how is that on the timeline? Forgive me, like, so you're yeah. dragging in both cameras uh, and, and then they're like layered on top or like, how does that how Yeah, does that just, just uh, track one is, is Beth's side, track two is Scott's side, uh, and then essentially pulling a 50% um, uh, wipe or, or transition over top of it so that we can only see half, half of the image and then move, moving his side to, you know, we, what we did when we shot it was we put line, we drew lines on the monitor so that our, uh, you know, both camera operators could see where perfect center was for when it was a vertical split. So they were actually shooting more on the left and more on the right so that we had an ability to, to have some extra room to move, but they also had the lines for the center. So they knew where to put the actors all the time, no matter how they were filming. And if it was from this to this, they knew that they could slightly move and, and try to just do a very smooth camera move. It was all handheld and, and just put them between, if they were in those guidelines, it, it would work out perfect in the edit. So no cuts, no dissolves, nothing. nothing. Just just in, in the credits at the end. Yeah, the movie the movie opens from a, a hard black after a, a production company logo, and then cuts to a hard black before the credits. So Gavin, you're directing the movie. There's two screens, two locations. Mm -hmm. There's one Gavin. <laughs> How does that work? Uh, the intention was we would treat it like a play. Once a play starts, the director sits in the audience. There's nothing else they can do. All of the directing, all of the prep, all of the Lighting cue changes and everything is done in, in the rehearsal process or between days of, of performance. Uh, so I was going to yell action and wait the uh, 78, 90 or 78, 80 minutes. And I would not be able to make any adjustments for the next take until I watched what, what was shot each day. Uh, due to some sort of unforeseen circumstances, I ended up camera operating one of the sides. So as well as directing, I, I camera op, uh, our DP, Seth Wessel uh, Estes did the one side, I did the other side, and uh, which, which was helpful because the take that we use, there are a few minor mistakes. The audience will never know, but it's a moment where you know, the actor could have wanted to cut and I was at least able to shout from behind the camera, 
don't stop, fix it, keep going, um, remove that audio and, and post. But uh, so I, I was able to make sort of minor adjustments on, on my side of the screen, but the other side I was completely blind to. Again, shooting on micro budget, the ideal way would be I'd be sat in a production van somewhere with the, the world's strongest wireless video feeds coming in so I could monitor uh, both sides, but just due to the nature of, of, of our budget and sort of scrappy approach to making indie film, uh, I just had to sit it out and hope that it went well until, uh, until I could watch it. So our process was we shot it for four nights. So we were going to shoot twice per night for four nights and have eight takes that we would have to pick one of those eight to be the movie. Uh, we ended up with five full takes and a few disasters. <laughs> Oh, so you are replaying the scene each time. Like you're, you're not doing new takes in the, the four days or whatever. You're doing, you're doing the movie over again to see which version you like? No, no, no. We would, we would film the entire movie twice per night for four nights. So we, we, our intention was to run the entire film. If you think like a stage play, if they had a seven o'clock performance and a 10 o'clock performance, we would do two times per night for four nights. Yeah, so eight runs. And then choose from the eight runs yes, the best yeah. version, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. interesting. And so your initial plan was to be is off, off, you know, in another location. Mm -hmm. um, but then you became one of the camera operators. I, I joked that I was just going to go have a whiskey or maybe take a take a sleeping pill and just wait it out instead of like nervously pacing for the entire time. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was not going to camera op, but uh, it became necessary and with my background in shooting documentaries and concert footage and being my own cinematographer for many, many music videos and short films, uh, I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. I thought I was going to give it one attempt and we'd have to scrape together some more money and fly someone in from Los Angeles. But I did, I did the first run. Everybody, I did, I did too good of a job. I should have done a less good job, so I didn't have to. Uh, so me at the, the most out of shape I'd ever been, suddenly I had to strap this 50 pound camera on my shoulder and uh, nail perfect focus for eight takes. And how far are these locations apart? We really lucked out. When we were originally discussing the film, we had uh, um, we were actually going to use a call center. It wasn't going to be a college uh, and it wasn't going to be a suicide hotline, but it was going to be like a telemarketing center that the, the character Beth was a janitor at. And that was a good seven to eight miles away from where where the apartment and the bar location was. Uh, but then when the college came on board, St. Clair College in, in Windsor, the locations are actually only about two city blocks from, from each other. So uh, anytime she's outside of the college, if the camera pointed up, you could see the 17-story apartment building that he's in. Like if he had been on the balcony at the same time she was outside, you may have even seen him in the distance with a trained eye. So that made production a little easier because at the end of every take or during rehearsal, it was only a block or so to go. We had to drive eight miles every time we had to do something or deliver a new battery or, or meet for a lunch break. It would have added, it would have sort of just extrapolated the amount of time that we needed. We probably would have had to find money and have more days of rehearsal and, and more time. So we, we were very, you know, it's, it's just, honestly, this project came together with so little production trouble, considering the, the, the task we were trying to accomplish, um, everything just started to fall into place as I guess. So we knew that Windsor was the right choice to film in. We picked the right crew and the right people to make it happen because the, even though the process of making the film was not easy, the elements that normally cause production so many, so many problems in terms of finding perfect locations and, and, and space and, and for the right price and all the other aspects of it fell 
fell in line fairly easy. Are you sharing monitor from one location's footage with the other location or no, because you're doing these no. long takes, yeah. when you get back, then you reassess it? Yeah, completely blind. Uh, it, it, not until we, what we would do is, we, we shot all of our rehearsals, so we had 10 days of rehearsal, which was performance rehearsal, actor rehearsal. The first three days, four days, we were not in the same location. Like what we would do is we would have both Sarah and David, the actors, in the apartment, in David or Scott's apartment. So she would just sit in another room in the apartment and read lines over the phone. It was just easier to give notes and make changes. And then eventually we got comfortable with splitting into the two locations. And once we were there, we would record every rehearsal. And just instead of recording, we shot the movie at 8K on the red, the red helium, but we decided we shot over the rehearsals at 1080p because it was just easy at the end of every night to put all of the rehearsal takes into a computer and just just roughly frame the, the the split so everybody watched the rehearsals day in and day out like or i guess every night and you know our dp could say ah that that light's a little too bright i should change this let's try to make the cameras line up here better when we get to this moment when they're talking and so we sort of use it like a, like the way a, i would say like the way a coach would use a, a game tape from a football game to analyze mistakes or things they can improve or or tight in performance, or maybe a band, you know, they watch back their own concert footage, say, ah, it looks silly when you do that, or that pyrotechnic didn't go off, let's make sure we fix that. Uh, sort of treat it like, again, all, all I needed was the uh, the thing to draw on the screen, you know, to circle, circle players, and it would have been a true game tape. How are you dealing with lighting, especially if you're moving, and if, if mm. you're having people, you know, physically yeah. walking? Uh, one thing, so as well as the camera operators having to be their own focus pullers, they also had an iris control, so if they're moving, say, from the, the street was a little brighter than the bar, they've got to close the iris, but do it do it at a speed, a very gentle speed, so that we don't really notice it. Some of that we just tweak in post-production and color to, to correct. Um, everything out on the streets is just available light, whatever street light was there. Uh, the bar was mostly practical, but augmented with some film light. So we would have to install everything, hide all the cables, because you know we are filming every location 360 degrees. So there's nowhere to hide a stand or leave a cable visible. The college, uh, the overhead lights are practical, but we did wrap them in a different color gel just to give a bit moodier, moodier tone than just sort of the hot white that you get from fluorescence. Um, everything else in the college is uh, quasar tubes, which have become super popular, kind of look like LED tubes. You can change the color on them. You see them in movies all the time now because you can set them up as a practical lamp. They look great as like under lights in a kitchen counter, or on the wall of an office or anything kind of sci-fi, they're, they're great. So we use those in the computer lab or we use small quasars to uh, accent, so say like an exit sign in a classroom that she's cleaning, just to give it a bit more red and make it a bit more ominous. Uh, and then the apartment that Scott's in, it's mostly practical. It's changing a 60 watt bulb to a 100 watt bulb, like putting a light in the fridge when he, if he's gonna open it, that's a little different, a light over the stove. There were a few lights out on the, on the balcony uh, when he's out there that, that are that are hidden that are that are film lights but the majority of that set was just done all all practical so there may be a filmmaker watching right now who's inspired by the film mm -hmm. or the idea what advice would you give them what are some of the biggest pitfalls to making a film in this style hmm. uh, ample rehearsal time uh, if you're going to make something in real time it really all comes down to the planning I mean, all film is pre-production to make it go well. I just think you have to a lot more time before you roll 
roll camera in order to make sure that every little detail is right. It, it, it is a, it's like learning dance choreography for the camera operators and, and the technical crew uh, and, and the actors to a sense. There's just so much to remember where you can't say, oh, I messed that up. Let's just go back to ones and start again. The more times you do that, if you're 40 minutes into a 70 minute take and you have to start over, it's, it's, it's costs a lot of money and a lot of time to continue to do that. So you really wanna put as much prep into it as humanly possible. I think the other thing to consider too is even in like a four minute single take music video, we've had moments where like, ah, it's kind of boring for 20 seconds. You know, you, you have to find a way that if you're gonna do a film with no edits, how do you keep it interesting? Like what's the story? It can't just be a gimmick. It can't just be, we did it in a single take. Because the first question is why? You have to justify why you're using that format. And that goes the same for any, any style of filmmaking. Why are you using handheld? Why are you doing everything on a steady cam? Like you have, to, you have to know why you're doing things, what the camera motivation is, what story do you possibly have to tell that doesn't require cuts or keeps that immediacy and that, that sort of, that, that was our, our goal to make a film that would always feel immediate, always feel tension. You know, that phone call ends, this man's life might end. So putting that tension, we thought the easiest, because every time you cut or have a, a fade in, a fade out to later, you get a tension relief. So you probably want to be telling a story that, that you know, undeniably cannot break the tension in order to tell uh, something in real time. And then study, study the masters, go watch Timecoat, go watch Victoria, you know, make sure you really consider, even, even our cinematographer, Seth, you know, he's an established cinematographer. The first thing he did was reach out to the, the DP of, of Victoria and just said, how? How did you do this? How did you do that? And he wrote back, he was very kind. He said, I don't, I don't have time to answer every individual question. I get asked this a lot, but I've put together this FAQ that sort of like runs the gamut of questions you could probably ask. If there's, not, if there's anything after that, you know, please, please reach out. Um, so yeah, ask people who have been there before because most people are excited to share their knowledge in this industry. Uh, especially if it's something that's in a rare format or rare style, uh, you know, I can say positively the people that gave me help and advice on how to do it, I'd be more than happy to, to pass that on. So that's it. The do, do your research, figure out why you want to tell the story that way. Don't make it just a gimmick. Um, you know, have, have something real to say. Was it the last version of, of shooting, like the last day? that ended up making it in the film or no? It was, it was day three or four, the first take. So we shot this, this first take that night and everybody felt amazing about it. We knew there were two little mistakes in it, but we knew that we could like work the mistakes into the story. We found, it was basically two times that Scott tries to use the phone to call, but actually misdialed and got a wrong number. So he just had to hang up the phone. We're like, well, we'll just, we'll add in like, you've reached so-and-so mechanics. We're not open until the morning. And so we, we can fix that if everything else, but everybody felt so positive about it. We said, instead of exhausting ourselves going again tonight, let's, let's stop. Let's all go home. We're, we're exhausted at this point through rehearsal and said, the camera guys get a break. Everyone gets a break. Let's just come back tomorrow and try to like go for broke and do one bigger and better knowing that we can live with this being the take. So the next day on the fourth day we did, uh, our last take, which was our fifth take overall. Uh, we got one and it was really good, but ultimately we, we did come back to the one that we all knew in our guts would, uh, would be the take. And that was the very first one? It was the, no, it was the first take of day three. Oh, so it was okay. take four of five. Yeah. Wow. 
What was the emotion like when, even though you did one last take, you went home, rested, but knowing that this could, this one looked really good, even though there were two little minor things, it how was, was that? Pure relief. You know, we were getting, we were on our second last day where it's like the money runs out tomorrow. We can't come back. We lose some of our crew. Flights are booked for people to fly back to Los Angeles. Like it's do or die. And uh, it, there, there definitely was a sense of, I don't know if we're going to get this. We always knew that going in that, you know, it's experimental. This might not work out. We had to tell our investors, you know, we, this might not happen, you know, so that's part of what you have to understand in investing in an experimental film. We might have to do some cuts in there to, to mix tapes together and just, you know, not make a real time movie anymore. But when we got it, it was, uh, it was interesting because some, sometimes it came down to like the the technical would be perfect. But one of the two actors would be like, ah, it wasn't, I, I know, I just know it wasn't my best take, but the other actor would have had an amazing take. But then you have, you have this unbalance of characters that wouldn't work. And just something with that take when we were finished, everybody knew it was, it was great. So it was a lot of celebrating, but also nervousness because it's like, okay, well, we got to come back tomorrow and try to like, we know there's things that don't work here. It's got to be, it's got to be perfect, but it's, it's relief. And I felt that many times doing single take music videos. Generally on indie music videos or any music videos, now you get one day. So if you're doing single take, you, you don't often have a day of rehearsal even budget-wise. You show up that day, you've got 12 hours to build it, prep it, design it, shoot it, and have it done. So you usually get to around hour 10, hour 11 being like, why, why do I keep doing these single take things? Like just, it's be so much easier if we cut. Um, so I think like anything, when it comes down to like, it's, it's like the winning point. I don't, I, I'm, terrible sports analogies, but it's like, if you've only got so much time on the shot clock to get that final, you know, that final goal or that final couple points to win the game, it really comes down to that pressure. Like if you're that, if you're that kicker in the Super Bowl that's gonna make or break the Super Bowl rings, you, uh, you the minute you kick that goal through, it's nothing but relief. So then you really didn't have a rough cut once you finished sort of piecing together different parts. It was basically just a few things and it was done. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, the reframing took a while, the color grading took a while, but just, yeah, to put a rough cut together was like same, same day, essentially, like tape, temp some, some music in. And again, our audio tracks, it's just one audio or two audio tracks from each microphone. So four audio tracks, but it's all one long continuous real time. So to sync those up was, was nothing. So there's immediately a rough cut. We got accepted to our first film festival off of a rough cut before our composer had done the music because it, he, you know, although he scored the movie live, um, like recorded it live, he took the time to write it and we talked about where the music would go and get all the sheet music prepped for the musicians and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, it, it, was, it was very interesting to like walk away from a movie and not then have that like, <sighs> the next few months of my life are sitting in this dark room, staring endlessly at these four second to 30 second clips trying to put a movie together. Do you think you'll ever make a film in this style again? I have plans to do something bigger, bigger, more challenging than this. <laughs> I, I don't know why it's like a blessing and a curse to be obsessed with this, this idea in this format. Um, something about it that's when everything can go wrong, that's the most exciting thing. I think for me, it's like, it's the only, I don't ride, I don't drive motorcycles, you know, I don't rock climb. So this is, this is my adrenaline rush of, uh, how can we, how can we make things more experimental and, and put more risk because I think when the payoff is there at the end, it's, it's, it's well worth it. 
And I just, the more, even, even when I shoot traditional movies, I'm like, well, can't we just do this whole scene in a single take? Like that's been happening a lot. And my short films have gone from 10 minutes to 17 minutes. Cause I'm like, well, I got these three scenes that we, we can't cut cause they're, they're single take. I don't even know. I should probably ask myself seriously. What, what about it is that I love, maybe I should have been a theater director. Well, you said you thrive on chaos. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something. Some people are their best. Yeah. Like some people are great emergency room doctors, or you know, whatever. They they thrive in that. Yeah. In that. Thankfully, sort of... I don't have to save anyone's life. But if I did, <laughs> I could probably do it on the first you know, in one take. <laughs> so you enjoy that the adrenaline rush, I the do. stress, yeah. all of that. Yeah. When whenever there's even traditional movies, when it's you know. Uh, it's gotta be fire or a stunt or something where everything's just gotta like work in perfect harmony with each other. That's always the most exciting stuff. Like, don't get me wrong, I love directing a, a dinner table scene between two people falling in love, but that's it's uh, it's just not as exciting as all the all the big stuff and the fun stuff. So when you sort of take those regular dramatic moments and put them in this real time element, there's just a lot more a lot more chaos. Not dinner with Andre. Yes. Yep. Yeah. In a single take. <laughs> How old were you when you made your first feature film? I was 23 years old. I had uh, watched Kevin Smith in high school, little maybe 22. Uh, I watched Kevin Smith, Rodriguez, you know, Richard Linklater, all these guys come up like I made my film between seven thousand and twenty-five thousand dollars. I just maxed my credit card, sold my comic book, sold my car, and then I went put it in Sundance and. Signed a million dollar deal with Miramax. I'm like, oh, that's all. That's all it takes. I can come up with twenty five thousand dollars, and then fail miserably. Because what they leave out of all those glossy stories is you have to make an amazing movie, and making an amazing movie for no money when you have no idea what you're doing is next to impossible. So the people who have done it are in some very rarefied air, <laughs> and they're they're where they are because they had that raw talent and raw ability right out of the gate. But what that gave me that. I always say failure is the best teacher. And that was, you know, we, we made a movie that was passable and I enjoyed it. I'm still very proud of it, but we had no idea how to sell it. We didn't get into Sundance. What do you do then? If that was your one and only goal, uh, being a kid from Canada, you know, living, living in the dark ages of like limited internet and we didn't have Facebook and social media and film freeway and all these wonderful things to know about. A lot of these film festivals that exist today didn't exist then. Like we, we had no idea what we were doing. So it was a lack of education and how the business works, a lack of understanding that just because you made a movie that has nothing to do with if people will ever see it or buy it or, or even know it exists. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a movie that, uh, it taught me the basics of how to make a movie. Uh, it was creative. It was fun. Uh, it excited me enough to go make another one. But it was uh, it was a complete disaster in terms of actually ever getting to market or making something that was uh, of quality enough for people to to embrace. What was it about? It was about three. Uh, it's called Leaving Town. It was about three uh, young people, like just sort of post post high school into college, where life's just not working out for for three very different reasons. That all end up uh, just serendipitously running into a bar in their hometown. And uh, one of them's got a much darker secret that he hasn't told the other two. And he proposes, well, we should rob the local bank and leave town forever, um, which they do. And then one thing after another continues to not work out. And the irony of the title is they may or may not even get out of town by the end of it. And was, was it worth it to ultimately ruin their lives way worse than they, they started with? 
So what did your perceived failure of it, whether it was a failure or not, what did that teach you? Uh, it taught me that I was going to have to learn a lot more about the business and, and how distribution works. And like, you know, we were shooting on the, the, the amazing camera at the time, the DVX 100. Um, you know, that was the first camera that came out that shot 24 frames a second. It, it mimicked film, had a beautiful look to it, but it was still pretty independent. It wasn't 60 millimeter film. It wasn't 35. It involved a lot more post work than we really knew what we were doing to, to achieve uh, a quality look with it. But it was mostly the business end of things, just not knowing, living in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, and not knowing a single person of how to. We also had a, a very depressing moment where uh, we had lightning. It was, we think it was a lightning strike or a power surge, but something in our office fried the computer and fried the hard drive and the backup copy had been uh, record, like not recorded over, but like copied over with wedding footage that uh, somebody at the company had like filmed the family wedding with. So we didn't have the backup suddenly. So the film had to be re-edited from, from scratch, um, which was a major, major setback. And that set us back a good year, year and a half, because then we could only edit it in our spare time and got it finished again. And I think just a lot of people like just the, the love and the excitement was gone. And that's, that's, that's a hard lesson to learn that like, you know, if you're going to commit to doing independent film, it's years of your life. You've got to be there to the bitter end till every last possible interview, sale, you know, screening, uh, spending more money on film festivals. That was part of it too. We, we raised enough money to make the movie, to shoot it, but then you don't realize how expensive proper post is. We hadn't researched that or what it's going to take to transfer to film to send to festivals at the time or even get the, the cost of submitting to film festivals or traveling to them. It was all things that were beyond our, our comprehension and ultimately it was, oh, well, can't really make a movie for $25,000. You can get it done, but you can't. There's a lot more to it that, that uh, is necessary to get it out there. Did you edit it? I did, yeah. Oh, okay. Even yeah, the second I, I time? I co-edited it. With a, that one I co-wrote, co-directed, and co-edited. So we, I only had 50% of the, the heartache from that one. Besides this interview, what else are you doing for your filmmaking career today? You could just oh, take man. us through a rundown. I have, uh, I have a hard drive full of six short films, experimental shorts that I just shot when we had free time or access to free gear that I have to sit down and edit and start getting out there. Uh, we have another feature in October that we're prepping to, to uh, go to camera with, another weird experimental movie. <laughs> uh, Last Call is on the festival circuit. We've sort of been having some amazing response and some people reaching out saying they want to help us to sell it. So that's been exciting to see what could happen. Uh, and then my you know, quote unquote day job is music videos. So there's a few things in the pipeline coming up. Always sort of one in the edit while another one's being prepped. And that's, uh, that should see out 2019. Yeah. <laughs> what makes a great story? A great story is great characters, great premise, and earn, what they call earned moments, uh, which is you can't just have this happen to a character so that this can happen in, in the plot. Everything has to be earned. Um, people talk about it in the last, this last season of Game of Thrones, a lot of people that didn't enjoy it, they didn't feel it was earned. It was just, oh, the queen went mad and now she's mad and angry. It didn't feel earned from a, from a show that otherwise for years had very slowly developed things, you know, like, 
had her madness set in over a season or two, it would have been a different thing. So I think it's really about just understanding that although you could have an amazing plot, you could have the next Purge, you could have the next Blair Witch Project, like the characters living through the events of that movie have to be strong and feel real. And, and the sort of emotional victories that they have or the things that set them back emotionally or physically all have to be earned moments. They all have to be things that feel believable versus just, oh, they did that so they can get from A to B. It has to be something that uh, organically fits the story and the characters. Have you seen a lot of indie films use sort of non-earned conflict? So they know they have to have conflict right away, but the audience isn't buying why there's the conflict? See, yeah, see it all the time. It's just fight, you know, fight starts between two actors because it's the moment where a fight has to start or, you know, it just seems to be triggered by the trigger point of, a, of, of that argument or conflict or, or just simply, um, I, won't, I won't name the, the screenwriting book, but there, you know, there's one that everybody has, has attracted to. So everybody's films start to feel exactly the same because they're, they're relying on this, this beat system of when the beats have to be hit versus like how to best get from beat A to beat B to beat C. How do you know the protagonist is someone you want to write about? I think you usually identify a little bit with your protagonist if you're writing an original story. So you're writing from a place sometimes where you understand, even if you don't have exactly the same life situations or even conflict in the story, you're always putting a little bit of yourself into these characters. And you should only write, kind of, they say write what you know. Um, I feel a good protagonist is, is somebody that you either want to be like or don't want to be like it, it to two extreme ends of it. And I think that's what makes anybody who's severely flawed or just um, severely wonderful. You know, I, I think those, those are where I start with most things of how do I, you know, I, I do write a lot of plot driven things. So like the plot uh, comes first, uh, but I th nothing works if you don't have a protagonist that you really care about or care why the plot elements are happening to him or her. Uh, so I think, I'm trying to think, that's a very good question. Um, but you just, you have to want to see them succeed. It has to be a character that's, that's likable, even if they're flawed, you know, Walter White in Breaking Bad, um, even, even the, re the redemption of Darth Vader, there has to be something in them, even if they're like an evil character that you, you want them to succeed or find that redemption or, or earn back the trust of the other characters in the story. Well, can you give me an example of a character that's severely wonderful? I mean, we know so many that are very flawed. But... Yeah, I mean, uh, Andy Dufresne and Shawshank Redemption. Okay. You know, even though he's in the worst situation, rarely does he let that change his optimism, change his willingness to, to help the people around him with like positioning to start a library or teaching people to get their GED while he's in prison and going through these horrific scenarios, you know, and never, never sort of letting the system, system get to him. That's a good example. <laughs> in under five minutes, can you give us the best screenwriting advice? Uh, be, be different. Don't just because you've read a book on screenwriting, don't follow that exact format. Uh, read screenplays, read every screenplay you can from amateur to professional. Uh, look movies you've watched, get those screenplays, especially sites like, I don't even know if it still exists, but like Drew Scriptorama or anywhere that, that houses screenplays or if you, especially if you live in LA, there's stores that sell them. 
uh, try to get early drafts of scripts and understand the changes that they made to production. I think the more you read and, and see the evolution of how, how writing is changing over the years, um, how character development and dialogue and just all the different, I think it's about looking at all the different, because you know there isn't one set format for writing a screenplay. There used to be, it's not so much anymore, but I think the more you, you read, you just filter through, this works for what I'm doing, this doesn't work, but you just see the way that people use description. Um, it's just practice, and for indie filmmakers, don't shoot your first draft. Um, your first draft is not perfect. I mean, unless you're the next, you know, Robert Robert Town or you know somebody somebody who's got just this amazing ability to, to Kevin Smith with Clerks even but I bet you that wasn't his first draft like just because you finished it and it was really difficult doesn't mean it's perfect so get feedback stage table reads listen to the advice that people give you even if you don't like it you're always going to fight for some things you don't have to take everyone's advice you will never not learn something you didn't think of or didn't see as being a problem in your script, the more people you ask to, to give their feedback and their input. Now, of course, sometimes you wanna do something weird and wild that people won't understand, and that's okay, you don't have to change it, but you have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite, get that feedback, because it's so important to shape. There's no way that any one writer can have all the answers and, and bang out a perfect screenplay without that guidance and help. Did you ever think what your life would be like if you hadn't gone to that Third Eye Blind concert? <laughs> Probably been shooting wedding videos in Windsor, Ontario. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what would be. It would be different. I think I've got. I've got the fight in me. I've wanted to make movies for a long time. I would have figured figured out a way. Could be. It's a, it's that thing you can't think about, right? You know, because the uh, the the sliding doors effect, that Gwyneth Paltrow movie of, or the butterfly ripple. Um, if I'd gone a more traditional way, would I be making the experimental movies I'm making now? Maybe not. Maybe I'd have more success working in the studio system or for television networks. Uh, but it would it'd be wildly different because you know, that, that also just taught me to start sneaking into everything as long as I wasn't breaking the law. You know, I met my wife sneaking into a party at the Toronto Film Festival. Um, definitely wouldn't have done that had it not worked previously so successful with bands. And uh, I've used it to sneak into events where I know I could meet people that could potentially read scripts or take a meeting with. So yeah, it would be wildly different. What would you tell a 20-year-old filmmaker on the realities of making a living as a filmmaker? It's funny because I just started a podcast with the same idea, which is the phrase, here's my advice, not that you'll take it. <laughs> Listen to the people giving you advice first off because you think that they're coming from what they're gonna tell you if it's honest advice is harsh, it's not gonna be easy, it's gonna require a lot more money and patience and heartache than you think you can bear. And you're gonna say, they just sound jaded because they've been around a long time. There must be a faster, cheaper, easier way to get this done. And then you'll fumble in the dark for a long time to eventually turn around and say, oh, that advice they gave me, I should have taken it. So listen to your elders. You know, you hit a certain point where you start saying that to people and say, oh, that's exactly what my parents said to me. Uh, but yeah, I, the, the best thing is just take, take advice, take the time to learn. Don't ever think that you're above something. Like if you want to be a director, great. Go grip on some people's films and understand and watch other directors work. Understand how important every role in that set is so that you never talk down or take, take anyone for granted that's on the set. And just keep making stuff. 
Like even if you're even if you're not proud of the short you made, put it up online anyways. It's part of learning to take criticism. It's part of learning to fail. Um, yeah, just keep making stuff and understand that it's 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 uh, it's the longest relationship you'll you'll ever have because um, you will fall in and out of love with it along the way. But it doesn't mean you should ever give up or not give it a second chance or not find a way to uh, you know make amends, kiss and make up with you, yourself and your creative dreams. Um, and don't ever think that a major setback means it's over because you're going to have a lot of them and most of us do. Not all of us are lucky to get plucked out of film school with our first film and, and have a star track record right to, to their uh, you know, uh, lifetime achievement awards at the end of their career. It's, it's, a, it's a, lot of, a lot of misery. It's a, like, I always say it's 99 setbacks for every one thing that works out. So when that hundredth thing works out, it has to fill you with so much excitement and joy and courage and, and wanting to like go and make the next thing that the next that, that it will it will shield you from the next 99 disappointments so then when you get the next one you got to do the same thing so that's that's the reality of it it's gonna it's gonna sting for a long time but you got to just enjoy what you're doing along the way and learn to not be end career focused because you never know how it's going to come about but if you try to fixate on it has to be this this and this Rarely life is that. So you have to be able to say, it's going to be this, but I might have to take this sideways trip. It looked like one of those Indiana Jones maps at the beginning or you know, James <laughs> Bond when they go from country to country. They want to go from here to here. But sometimes that means Salah's got to take them all over here to get back to that arc. Yeah. What's the biggest obstacle right now that you're facing in your career? Uh, getting something like last call that we've made and we believe in we've had good small critical response uh you know a couple festival audiences that have been raving about it on social media telling everyone to watch it just how to get that in front of people you know because everybody's trying to get their work in front of people so what do you do to stand out how do you use a manager and an agent to to the full potential of like making sure that people are gonna when they get 100 emails a day saying watch the screener watch the screener what can you do to make yours stand out? Uh, and I think that's that's the biggest thing, like you know, because there there are always going to be powers above that have to greenlight things or or open up the uh, the financial purse so that you get to make your next project. Uh, and I've I've always sort of struggled with that, where you know I've had a lot of people say to me, "You should be much further in your career than you than you are." And man, we can't believe that you're still struggling. We've got all these great ideas, like, and that's just the reality of it. You know, you have to you have to wake up every day and want to do this and know that it's also a lottery. You know, there's a lot of great singer songwriters that I know that I think are far more talented than half the artists I listen to on the radio. People don't know who they are. And part of this industry really is luck and timing. And you don't, you can make your own luck to a degree, but you have no control over the destiny of timing of when things will align for you. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the biggest challenge has been just how to get the work out there, but, the great uh, remedy to that is to just keep making work. And you know, they, what's the, the phrase, to be so great they can't ignore you. You know, just keep making content, keep, keep chipping away at that career, and you know, hopefully the larger opportunities present themselves. Would you really say the perception is that you're struggling? Because you have such a large body of work and yeah. it's excellent. But I mean, in order, in order to, but in order to do that, it's come at the, at the sacrifice of like, having a much more lucrative day job or having the financial stability. And 
you know, moving from Canada to America comes with a lot of uh, like financial strain and things that uh, that are not are not easy. Um, working between the two countries that adds a lot of like time away in terms of like relationships and family and um, yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't say I'm. I mean, it's also what they classify as like first world problems. You know, like there's there's a lot greater strifes in the world that people people struggle with. Uh, but it, it's a, it's it's just not letting the mindset of uh, of defeat. It's, it's like not it's like getting to go for your Super Bowl winning game and ring like 17 times in a row but never winning. Somewhere in you, you've got a question saying, "Am I a good enough athlete? And am I surrounding myself with the best athletes I can in order to do this?" And you can't ever let that trick you and say, "No." You have to say, "No, we're the right team." We're the right athletes. It's just not our game yet. It just means that it doesn't matter how good we are. There was somebody a little bit better than us. You know, you've seen that in the history of what, let's use. I mean, the Oscars are an easy example for filmmakers. You see people that like. How many times did Roger Deakins lose Best Cinematography, even though he's considered one of the greatest of all time? But if you look year to year and are honest and say, I can't believe he didn't win for this movie, and then you go, Oh, that's the film that won. That film was amazing. You know, like. There's always there's always something. So it doesn't matter how great you are. How do you how do you edge out or or get past? Um, you know, it's it's the most one of the most competitive industries in the world. So you, you have to you have to know that you're searching for a very very rare prize at the end of it. Are you competitive, or you just want to make great great like sort of like tell great stories? I I, I have both in me. I, I have bouts of being being competitive and trying to you know I'm. I'm very good to energize myself and be strategic to get myself, and I'm, I'm definitely not afraid to get in front of people and use whatever um, you know connections or favors that I can possibly ask to make that happen. But at the same time, uh, I also just want to make great stuff. And I think that's probably part of the struggle is uh, I'm not selling out. It's not the right term, but I'm not. I'm not as willing to sort of monetize, like I'd probably make an excellent mentor or like script writing coach or something to people that I could actually charge money for. But I, I do have that and not, and not to like, I don't have an ascot on that I can wave and put my sunglasses on. I'm not trying to be artsy fartsy, but like the artist part of me just wants to make and create things. And that's, that's more important than figuring out how to monetize it. Why is it important for you to be a filmmaker and not a film watcher? Oh man, I, I think, I mean, it starts with my dad. He's a photographer. We always had sort of like eight millimeter cameras kicking around the house. So from a very early age, I was playing with like stop motions, making stop motion Lego things. Uh, I wanted, I, and I wanted to be a writer first. That's, that's the real truth. I wanted to write novels. And then when I kind of got obsessed with writing movies, but again, when I was 18 or 20 and writing these movie scripts, I, I, I didn't know that I should move to LA and get an agent. I didn't know any of this. I thought, well, I need to get one of these made so that people can see what my words look like on the screen. And there was no Facebook. There was no, I need a producer groups. There was no, uh, ain't it cool news chat rooms where you could meet, you know, you could meet other people. And I just, I said, okay, well, I don't know any directors. I guess I'll just direct it. I don't know any other cinematographers. I guess I'll pick up a camera and learn how to shoot things. Uh, but as I sort of started exploring each of those elements, I realized, Ooh, these are all very related. And, and I like, I like them all. I loved editing. I was always editing videos in high school. So I've always sort of been just uh, afflicted with wanting to tell stories in one form or another. And then I realized that when I paired 
the right visuals and the right dialogue with the right music that I had a really good ability to sort of draw emotion out of people and sort of get the, not be manipulative, but if I wanted people to cry, I could, I could make that happen with like telling a sad tale. If I wanted people to laugh, I knew how to time the edits and, and the jokes and things to work. And it just, it's like, uh, I don't use drugs, which I know if I did, I'd be just as addicted to them as filmmaking. So filmmaking is like, like my drug. I just have to wake up every day. It never, I never stop thinking of stories. I can be in, I can go to Trader Joe's after this on the way home and, and something, something will happen. I'll see something. I'll look down at the wheel of the cart wobbling and be like, that would be a great shot. And then the setup would be this. And this character knows this character because it's just, it's just always sort of churning. So I can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, I've tried to quit a couple times and just go do do a different job, but it's always it's always come back. Mostly my friends saying, "What are you, what else are you gonna do? You can't. You're you're programmed to do this." So you wanted to be a novelist like William Gibson or just? Yeah, I just it started writing. Uh, hey P Pixar, if you're listening, I have this pitch since third grade. Uh, in third grade, we had to do a thing called write a one page story called "My Life Is an Easter Egg," and the premise was. Everybody got the same piece of paper the teacher had written at the top. My life is an Easter egg, dot, dot, dot. And you had to write a one page story. So I ended up turning in like this 38 or 39 page story that started with, I was a chocolate Easter egg that was manufactured in this plant. And then it's, I remember like the, the um, it's like the CVS of Canada, Shoppers Drug Mart, or, or they, they, you could get your, your name, like your kid's name written on the Easter egg. So it would be customized when they got this chocolate egg, just done with frosting. And so my idea was I was a per like my Easter egg was a personalized egg and it was going to this little kid, Jimmy in Saskatchewan. And that meant he had to get on a truck, but then the truck ended up taking a wrong exit and like people robbed the truck and the egg ended up like going. So it was all about this Easter eggs, almost like a toy story of a chocolate Easter egg of like the misadventures of him. Just like, no, I have to get to this kid. I have to, and it was this 30 and, and like my third grade teacher was just like to my parents, like, uh, think he might be a writer, you know, oh. I think that imagination might be hyperactive. How cool. That's a great mm -hmm. story. Did it get to Jimmy? Did he uh, get it did. It did. Oh, good. And now Pixar, you could make this your next franchise. <laughs>